Or have you not noticed? I hope you have. Some of the world hasn't. Eschatology. <laughs> we said we weren't going to use those words, but we've done it every time, so I might as well do it too. Yes, they do. They do. You're right. Comes from the Greek word eschatos, which means last or last things. And so eschatology is the doctrine of last things. Or in other words, what we more commonly know as end time things or even end time prophecy. Now, the message of eschatology always hinges on the person of Jesus Christ and his second coming. Now, obviously, his first coming is behind us, and so we're looking ahead now to his second coming, and the things that are last for us were a part of Israel's anticipation in his first coming, that having been accomplished, now we're on the grand side of that finished work, and we are looking for him to fulfill his promises with regard to uh, his second coming. Now, I was thinking about this issue of the prophecies of his second coming. Thank you, brother. A cup of cold water in the name of the Lord shall not lose its reward. And where was the first reference in the Old Testament to his second coming? Now, some of you may remember better than I, but as far as I can recall, it was the prophecy of Genesis 49 when Jacob was speaking uh, to his children and prophesying to each of the 12 of them as to what their lot would be in the last days. And by the way, parenthetically, when you see that expression in the Old Testament record, the last days, he's talking about that period of time when God is going to consummate the promises that he made to the nation of Israel. They are always the key. They are God's time clock. And what happens with Israel happens with the world. When God wants to do something in the Gentile world, he usually corresponds with some act in the nation of Israel. We can't get on all that right now. Genesis 49.10, 10, God prophesied, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the obedience of the people be. The idea of Shiloh, of course, is Messiah. You have the same word, Hebrew word, though it isn't translated that way. In Ezekiel chapter 21 and verse 27, uh, uh, God said, I will over, regarding the diadem, the crown that belongs to Israel and to Judah, he said, I will overturn it, I will overturn it, and it shall be no more until he come whose right it is. And that expression, whose right it is, is a translation of the Hebrew word Shiloh. So God is going to grant the, the uh, crown uh, to the Messiah Shiloh in that day when he comes. Now, 
As far as I know, that's the first reference in the Old Testament to his second coming. Now, I have to point out that it is not the oldest reference to his coming. The oldest reference to his coming is in the book of Job. And somebody says, well, that's Old Testament, yes, but it predates probably Abraham. In terms of how old the book of Job is, it's been around before the days of Abraham. And even in the book of Job, there is that anticipation of his coming. There are several verses that might be cited in that regard, but one stands out prominently, and doubtless most of you could quote it. Chapter 29, verse 25 and following. And Job said, I know. Isn't that great? Not, I think, uh, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. And after the skin worms destroy my body, I know that in my flesh I shall see God. What a discourse in those few words. First, that the coming of Messiah will be visible and physical to the earth. That's what Job said. He shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. My conversation with that church Christ preacher always comes to mind when I say this. And should I say it again? But if I had, this is what I'd have said. He said, Keith, there'll never be a time when Jesus will return to the earth. And so I took him to several passages which he rejected because they were in the Old Testament. And finally I took him to, took him to Acts 111, this same Jesus, which you've seen taken into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go. And his reply was, well, Keith, that was a long time ago, and we don't know what's happened since then. That doesn't even make any sense. Job understood that in the latter day that he would visibly and physically stand on the earth. And after the skin worms have destroyed this body, in my flesh I shall see God. What's he saying in that? He's saying that I know that I'm going to experience the resurrection of the righteous. It's the same thing that the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. This corruption shall put on incorruption. That's the dead body. And this mortal shall put on immortality. That's the living saint. And we shall be changed. <laughs> Everybody gives the right answer, but it's the wrong question. <laughs> we shall be changed. Yes, we will be like him because John says we shall see him as he is. Now, if you're going to pursue eschatology, you have to do so in terms of the three bodies of the redeemed. The first body of the redeemed is the nation of Israel. The second body of the redeemed is the church of Jesus Christ. And the third body of the redeemed are the nations of the world, or as more specifically Revelation puts it, the nations of them that are saved. There's no such thing as a saved nation. 
It is the nations of those that are saved. And we'll talk more about that in due course. But first, we have to look at the issue of Israel. Israel is promised to receive an inheritance that, it, that God promised to Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. And in you shall all of the nations of the world be blessed. What did he mean by that? That out of the line of Abraham would come, would come the Shiloh. Yes, Messiah indeed. Pardon me. And the promises that were given to Abraham are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. They will be fulfilled. We'll talk more about that momentarily. The church of Jesus Christ is the bride of Christ and it awaits the wedding. Revelation chapter 19. His wife, I'm sorry, has made herself, the, the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. That's the thing we're all anticipating. We're looking for the day when we'll be translated into his presence, when we will face the judgment seat of Christ. I'm getting a little ahead here. Uh, and the wedding will take place, and we will return with him in power and great glory. When he came the first time, he came in humiliation. When he comes the second time, he will come in power. And great glory. And then, of course, the third thing, the nations of the world are his creation. God separated. Deuteronomy 32. He separated the nations according to the tribes of Israel. I'm going to preempt a little bit here about that section. But that was always an interesting expression to me. He separated the nations according to the tribes of Israel. Now, you may feel like I'm reading something into this. But it is my firm conviction that the nations are going to be divided into 12 lots. Now, I didn't say 12 nations, but into 12 lots. And one of the tribes of Israel is going to have responsibility over each one of those 12 lots of nations. That's how God divided them. When we get to that, we'll look at that. Uh, Acts chapter 17, Paul pointed to that as a matter of fact. He's made of one blood, all men on the face of the earth, and he has set the bounds of their habitation. Now, we frustrated that like we frustrate everything that God wants. I mean, we louse it up and we pay the price. But God has boundaries, particular boundaries, for all of the nations of the world which will be realized when Jesus Christ comes and takes the throne of his father David in the city of Jerusalem. So we're going to have to look at these three bodies of the redeemed. So we start with the nation of Israel. Now, uh, I'm going to have to reiterate some very familiar passages to you in order to address this properly. And so I want you to bear with me in that, but repetition is the price of knowledge. And I want you to know I firmly believe that. And so come with me, please, to Ezekiel in chapter 37. Ezekiel in chapter 37. Ezekiel 
Ezekiel, I must say before we even read, is the great prophet of the restoration of the nation of Israel. Ezekiel wrote during the captivity of the nation of Israel. Talking about the river Kibar, Ezekiel said, I sat where they sat. He was experiencing everything that Israel in the captivity was experiencing. And God began to give him, give him prophetic messages with regard to where they were and why they were experiencing it, and mainly their ultimate restoration. That is his theme. i got to digress here a minute to say that when you get into the 40th chapter of Ezekiel and God begins to address the restoration of the kingdom and then finally of the temple uh, in Jerusalem, uh, men who have rejected the idea of Israel being restored to their kingdom don't know what to do with 41 through the end of Ezekiel. And when they talk about the uh, a description of the temple, they have no idea in the world what to do that, so they come up with these phantasmagorias of imagination trying somehow to apply it to his body, the church, because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, yes? And so that's got to be the temple. It is an architectural plan of a particular building which Israel is going to build. And that's the plan for its building. Never lose sight of that. Okay, I've said enough about that. Come back to chapter 37. Did I tell you to go there? To put this in a little bit of context, look at verse uh, chapter 36 and verse 26. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Now, that hadn't happened yet. It will, but it hasn't. Move on down, please. Verse 32, not for your sake do I this, says the Lord God. Isn't that wonderful? How encouraging it is to know that God does not fulfill his promises predicated on my cooperation. He does it because he said he would. And that's the end of the matter. Uh, may I be forgiven for repeating, repeating it? You've heard the expression, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Uh-uh. God said it, and that settles it, and I believe it. Verse 32 again, Not for your sakes do I this, says the Lord, let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities and in the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. Verse 36, the last part, please. I, the Lord, have spoken it and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. Isn't that great? 
God says, I'm going to do this. Absolutely, I'm going to do this, but you're going to pray for it. And that's why I'm so convinced that God places the burden and the spirit of prayer upon people to accomplish what he wants because prayer is the wound and the matrix of the birth of all of God's plans. How many of you all are out there? I'm encouraged. Chapter 37. Chapter 37, verse 7, verse 8, verse 10, they set out the threefold restoration of the nation of Israel. And the hand of the Lord came upon me, and he brought me in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley that was full of bones. And then he caused me to pass by them all around. Behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Lord, that's your question. You answer it. Pardon the lamb paraphrase. And again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinews upon you and bring flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and then you shall know that I am the Lord. And so Ezekiel said, so I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied there was a noise and suddenly a rattling and bone came together bone to bone. Now, I said these were three stages of Israel's restoration. And bone began, began to come together with bone and they were still dry bone skeletons. That began to happen in 1896 when Theodore Herzl began his move to get people of Israel, Jews, to go back to the land. They held their First conference in Belgium in 1897. And Israel, Jews, began to come back to the land of Israel even though it was nothing but desolation because the Arabs, as usual, had ruined it. Uh, I read a book um, called uh, Why They Hate, I think that was the name of it, something like that. And it was a Christian woman from Lebanon who had gone through all the persecutions that they experienced at that time. And she was talking about how the Arabs, wherever they go, ruin everything. She was talking about the difference between Israeli-occupied Jerusalem and Arab-occupied Jerusalem. And the description that she gave of Israel's side was clean and pure and uh, 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 sanitary. I'll use that word. And the Arab side was wretched and filthy and very unsanitary because the men just used whatever corner they could find for a latrine. How did the Arabs ruin the land? Well, the Ottoman Empire said, we're going to tax you. That is the Arabs who lived there after, of course, uh, so many captivities and, and uh, 
uh, what do you call about it, power changes, yes, that had taken place in the Ottoman Empire, which was Turkey primarily, was ruling the area <coughs> before World War I. <coughs> and uh, they said, we're going to tax you, and we've got to have a basis to tax you, and so we decided to tax you according to the trees that you have on your land. Guess what? <laughs> they cut them all down. So there wasn't anything to tax. Well, what was the result of that? The land decayed. Deserts came in. Swamps came in. They ruined the whole land. When Israel came, I'm jumping ahead here, but when the Jews came back to the land, they planted eucalyptus trees, which soaked up the, the uh, uh, swamps. They began to plant fruit trees that bore fruit. And that was according to the law. Did you know that? God said, when you come into the land of Israel, uh, to Joshua, he said, I want you to cut down every tree that doesn't bear fruit. And I want you to plant trees and preserve the trees that all that bear fruit. Well, there's a grand analogy in that with regard to his people. But the whole idea was it was productive. And Israel planted fruit trees, orange trees, uh, uh, what do you call those things they have in Fredericksburg up here? Peach trees and so forth. And they are one of the major exporters of fruit right now. Some of that orange juice you drink may well have come out of uh, uh, the plains of Israel. How did I get on all that? Oh, yes. So, bone began to come to bone. And it was a slow process to see over the years that re recovering of the nation of Israel. And, of course, they weren't very welcome in that land. But they came back in great numbers in any case. But they didn't come back in great enough numbers. And so the Lord had a solution to that. Now, you all need to understand this, that God is not humanistic. You all understand that? I mean, we've turned him into some kind of a welfare individual so that Christianity is defined today uh, to be a uh, humanistic organization that's supposed to take all of its resources and help the poor and the afflicted, and that ain't so. You won't find any, anything in the, the Old Testament or the New Testament that you're supposed to start any kind of humanistic welfare organization. None. The mission of the church, am I being uh, radical enough here? Uh, the whole humanistic idea uh, that has been given to the church has caused us to be distracted from our prime mission, which is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they weren't coming back fast enough. And so Lord reigned something. His name was Hitler. And he raised up this antagonistic power in Europe that hated Jews. And the experience of that tragically was the whole Holocaust. And six million, I believe more than that, but that's the official record. 
Six million Jews perished at the hands of Hitler. And when the war was over and he was destroyed, and the remnants of those that were in those uh, uh, concentration camps were finally filled, uh, freed the, the attitude in the nation of Israel and among Jews was dramatically changed. Let's go back to our own land. We need a place that we're safe. Something where the government uh, is not antagonistic against us. And so we're going to go back to the land of Israel and we're going to start our own government there. And they came by the droves. I re, I, I've told you this before. I know maybe not all of you have heard me say it, but when Jerry Golden, who was... Uh, uh, what do you call it? Golden, uh, Golden Gloves champion, boxer, a very mean-spirited individual, uh, was remarkably redeemed by the Lord. And uh, when God redeemed him, he, he didn't take away his uh, blunt, uh, uh, what do you say, that attitude. Absolutely no tact whatsoever, that's right, no tact whatsoever. Um, he immigrated to Israel after the Lord saved him, and he carried on evangelistic meeting before that for quite a while. And he immigrated to Israel with his two children and his wife, and, and of course they took classes for Jewish immigrants so they could learn language, custom, etc. And in the course of those classes, one of the instructors made the comment about the Holocaust and he said, I, could not under, I cannot understand how God could allow something like that to happen. And Jerry, being the uh, outspoken individual that he was, and careless individual, immediately said, allow it, he caused it. Well, now, you can imagine how that fell on that class. <laughs> of course, Jerry didn't care one way or another. But Jerry was right. God caused it because he wanted his people to go back to the land. And that's the second part of the prophecy. Indeed, as I looked, verse 8, the sinews and the flesh came upon them and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. That's where we are right now. In 1947, when Israel once again became a nation and the UN, bless its pea-picking heart, granted to them the right to be sovereign. I always thought that was... In any case, that's when sinews and flesh came on those bones. They became a nation. They raised their flag 14 May 48 and they became a nation. And the world recognized them, except the Arab world. And they immediately went to war with all of their mass of enemies. I'm really not teaching very well right now. I'm more like kind of <laughs> preaching maybe. <clears throat> but all of this mass of the Arab world that completely surrounded them all the way from and including Egypt, all the way across to Persia or what we know as uh, Iran today, hated them wanted to destroy them, 
And so they all went to war against Israel and they lost. Why did they lose? Because the hand of the Lord was with Israel. You cannot explain that any other way. Somebody asked the question, well, how do you know that Israel is indeed uh, experiencing the blessing of God? And I have to say, because they're there. There is no other explanation for that. They wouldn't be there. Tell me another nation of the world, any of them, that could have withstood what they've gone through and survived. Tell me one. Nations have been swallowed up by their enemies around them because God is not with them. So sinews, flesh, came on them in 1948. That was the second stage of the prophecy. The third stage of the prophecy is verse 10. And so I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and stood upon their feet exceedingly great army. Breath has not yet come in them. What we read in those previous verses is the anticipation of God breathing on that people and redeeming that people. And as Jesus said, they shall look on whom they have, they have pierced and they will mourn because of him. Paul said it, I'm sorry. And all Israel shall be saved. What a grand anticipation that nation has. Now, since we're talking about eschatology, come with me to Matthew chapter 24. I'll tell you, brethren, there ain't no way I'm going to be able to get through these three things today. You probably wouldn't want me up here next week anyhow. I'm going to be so knotted up and antagonistic and mad because of this election that comes up. I wouldn't be fit to listen to. I believe. Yes, that McCain is going to be elected. I believe that. He'll have hell to pay fulfilling his office, but... Don't let me talk about what would happen if the other guy got elected, all right? Goodness. Lord help us. Okay, did I say Matthew 24? Uh, verse 4, please. Take heed that no man deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. And the end is not yet. Now, Luke translates this statement that here we have in verse 7 a little differently. Luke says, Then... Nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. The word translated nation is ethnos, ethnics. And we've certainly seen that happen, this, pardon me, ethnic conflict across the world. And he said that these ethnos uh, and this, these kingdoms are going to rise up. There will be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in various places. All these or the beginning of sorrows. I want to suggest something to you. That he's talking about world conflict here. When nation rises against nation. The war to end all wars. And I could point this out. That uh, how Lindsay has done some studies on 
uh, the increase of famines and earthquakes across the world since the turn of the last century, and it is a phenomenal uh, uh, progression. There's a word for that. I've lost the word. Anyhow, dramatic increase in the number of them. But the key to it, in my view, is nation rising against nation, and I believe that that, that is world conflict and that that happened in 1914. At the beginning of World War I, we weren't in it till 17, but it began in 1914. Right about the same time that bone began to be joined to bone, God orchestrates the events in the world. And you can look at Luke and you can see that maybe a little more plainly, but I want this context. Uh, Move over to verse 15. And before I read this, I want to try to make something very plain. That the book of the, prof, uh, of the gospel of Matthew is Jewish. You've heard us, all of us say several times that not all scripture, all scripture is written for us, but not all scripture is written to us. You know, we used to, when we were younger, sing this little ditty, Every promise in the book is mine. Every chapter, every verse, every line. You remember that? You all remember that? Yes, you remember that? Yes. No, they're not. Um, the prophecies against Babylon uh, are not anything I'd love to embrace. There are a lot of prophecies in the scripture that are not ours. Promises, if you would. Now, I want to emphasize this, and you can call it lambology if you want to. I'm not alone in it at all, that the gospel of Matthew is Jewish. And the whole message of the gospel of Matthew focuses on the Jew, his experience and restoration. That's why it is the one gospel, the uh, uh, what do you call it, synoptic gospel, that mentions the church. Because Israel is referred to as the church in the wilderness, the ecclesia, the called out body in the, in the wilderness. And Jesus said, in response to Peter, of course, upon this rock I will build my ecclesia, my called out assembly. And that was in distinction to these people to whom this gospel was being rendered. And so when you come to the point that you begin to deal with Matthew chapter 24, quit trying to put the church into it. Because the church, you want to put the church in a gospel, get over to John. Uh, i got to say this since I'm here. Uh, all three of the synoptic gospels address the rise of uh, the uh, abomination that, that uh, makes desolate, the rise of the Antichrist and so forth. All three of them do. All three of them testified to the importance of watching for these things to come to pass in the earth. John doesn't do that. What does John say? Let not your heart be troubled. <laughs> Isn't that good? <laughs> I mean, what you read in the Gospels are fearful things. Particularly in Matthew 24. But John doesn't say that. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
and my father's house are many abiding places, and I go to prepare a place for you, and when I uh, come again, I will receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And that's all he has to say about that time period. Because your promise, according to Paul, you are not appointed under wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. That is your promise. These are days of wrath. This is what Jeremiah called the time of Jacob's trouble, and he shall be saved out of it. Darkness, I'm sorry, light comes out of darkness. Life comes out of death. Order comes out of chaos. And before Israel can experience the finality of her redemption, she must, as Jeremiah said, go through her time of trouble. And that's an understatement. So did I take you to verse 15? Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Now I have to pause here to point something out. <coughs> I'm sorry. That prophecy had already been fulfilled in Daniel's day. The abomination of desolation, actually a little after Daniel, the abomination of desolation was placed uh, in the holy place um, in about, what, 165, something like that. I could be dead wrong about that, but that's my memory. It was already fulfilled. But Jesus took a passage that was already fulfilled and he made it future. That's what's called in the Word of God the law of double reference. That God will prophesy something in the immediate, it will be fulfilled in the immediate, but it has a much longer and later fulfillment. And the last fulfillment is always the most important. And he goes on in verse 16, Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Now, why does he say that? Well, the first part of it's pretty obvious. If you're fleeing from an invading army and somebody who wants to kill you, being pregnant or nursing children is not exactly the most comfortable way to flee. But why would he say, pray that it be not in the winter on the Sabbath day? Because both of those time periods would make fleeing far more difficult because on the Sabbath day in Israel, nothing goes. You couldn't even get a taxi. And so you would be stuck. And in many areas of the city of Jerusalem, Orthodox Jews lay logs in the middle of the road. So you can't get through. So Jesus said, you better pray that it isn't on a day like that. Because you're going to have a hard time getting free, getting loose. For then, verse 21, there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Now, the elect 
in this passage is not the church. It seems like that we read a word in the New Testament that applies to the church and all of a sudden we think that's us everywhere. Israel is as much the elect of God, as Paul points out in Romans, as we, the body of Christ, are. And for the elect's sake, he said, these days are going to be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is Christ there, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise, show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, the very elect. You know, I, I know he's talking about the great tribulation here, but when I read that verse, I think of myself, there's already the seed of that in the world. Deceptions, signs, wonders in the name of Jesus, false prophets. Therefore, therefore, if they say to you, look here in the desert, don't go. Look here in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And wherever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. When I was in college, we had to write uh, a commentary on that one verse. The carcass is Israel. The eagles are the nations. And those nations are going to be coming against Israel in a great drove and God will destroy them. And I heard a guy giving a commentary one time on verse 27, as lightning shines from the east and flashes to the west. He said that's the way the gospel is going to ultimately conquer the whole world. It's like oriental sheet lightning and it just travels across the heavens, and ultimately the gospel will travel across the earth, and everybody will be converted, and that's a lot of poppycock. <laughs> Goodness. How could you get that out of that verse? I don't know. Lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. He will appear on the earth in a flash. Now I'm going to skip you down. So many things ought to be talked about here because I'm trying to follow this same theme of the cycle of their restoration. Look at verse 32. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch is yet uh, already become tender, and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. So you also, when you shall see these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Now, these things primarily point to verse 15 and following. That is the establishment of the abomination that makes desolation spoken of by Daniel prophet. But as as we said a moment ago, while all Scripture isn't written to us, it is written for us. And I have to look at the previous verses and some of those events that Jesus talks about coming to pass, for example, nation rising against nation, earthquakes, etc., various places. And you can even watch that right now. Natural disasters all over the world. It's got to be commonplace. And I have to say to myself, Lord, you're warning us as much as you're warning Israel. And you remember that Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for 
not being able to read the signs of the times. He said, you discern the face of the sky, but you're not able to discern the signs of the times. Let us not make the same mistake. We are in the last day. We are. The, the uh, psalmist said, Lord, there, there is no longer any prophet, neither is there any that knows, that knows, that's, yeah, it's too vague. Neither is there any that knows how long, how long. God expects his people to be sensitive to the times in which they live. And we are living in the last day. Now verse 32, this parable of the fig tree, when its branch is already tender and it puts forth leaves. The fig tree is one of three trees in the word of God that stand for Israel. The olive tree stands for her covenant blessings. The vine tree stands for her spiritual blessings. And the fig tree stands for her national blessings you can run those on your own the fig tree anticipates the restoration of the nation and when its branch is tender and it puts forth leaves it put forth leaves in 1947 there was the definite sign of life and jesus said when you see all these things know that it is near even at the doors now, God doesn't count time like we do. When he said, uh, for example, that uh, he, is, uh, uh, he will come quickly. I lost the phrase. Behold, I come quickly. Well, quickly in his mind is a little different quickly in our mind. Quickly in our mind is tomorrow. Quickly in him. You know, a day with the Lord is a thousand years. A thousand years is a day. So quickly isn't quite as quickly as ours. But in his economy, it's quickly. And his economy focuses on the last days. Verse uh, 34. Assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass until all these things come to pass or take place. Now some have read that generation as the generation that Jesus was talking to. No, 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 no. He's talking about the generation that sees these things begin to come to pass. This generation that sees these things happen, the, the uh, fig tree putting forth its leaves, nation rising against nation, uh, the abomination make it desolate. He said, the generation that sees these things will not pass until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. I want you to come back with me now, please, to Jeremiah's prophecy. And chapter 31. There's a whole lot in Jeremiah that might be uh, spoken to. Y'all still there? Uh, Let me get in the right place here. Mm -hmm. 
Jeremiah, of course, prophesies the new covenant that he makes with Israel. Now, I need to point something out to you here. Israel has not experienced yet that new covenant. That new covenant was declared when Jesus Christ said it is finished, but because Israel would have none of it. Jesus said, how oft would I have gathered you under my wings as a hen gathers her brood, and you would not. Therefore, your house is left unto you desolate, and you will see me no more until you say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. I want to point out to you, they'd already said that. When he entered through the east gate in Jerusalem, they cried out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He said, You're not going to see me again until you finally will say that phrase. Blessed is he that comes. It anticipates the second coming of Jesus Christ. I said all that to say this, that the new covenant for Israel is put in abeyance until such time as Jesus Christ will come in power and great glory, and as Paul put it, and all Israel shall be saved. So allow me to read verse 37. And remember that we as the church were a mystery hid in age past times. We, there was no announcement in the Old Testament record that God was going to do what he's doing today to call out of the Gentiles a people for his name. But now it's revealed by his holy apostles and prophets. Verse 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, which covenant they broke, though I was an husband unto them. Israel is the wife of Jehovah. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind, write them on their hearts. I will be their God, they shall be my people. Now that anticipates the day when breath will come in the sinews and flesh and they will stand up an exceeding great army and God will restore to Israel the promises that he gave to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Move down to verse 35. Thus says the Lord God, if there's any question by the way about this ever happening, who gives the sun for a light by day and the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. That sounds like a pretty positive promise to me. Move on over to chapter 33. I don't know if I'm being paged or what up here, but every now and there is deep. Something up here is doing that. But I'm going to ignore it. If it explodes, we're all together in it. 
Uh, I'm going to start from verse 17, if I may. For thus saith the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the house uh, on the throne of the house of Israel. Nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offering before me, to kindle grain offering, to sacrifice continually. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord God, If you can break my covenant with the day, and my covenant with the night, so that there shall be no day nor night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant. That is a pretty certain promise. Now we're coming, I'm going to wind this up, so breathe easy. Come with me please to Romans in chapter 11. And we'll put this in more present day context. See if I might want to read, if I can get it. I'll tell you these thin pages. Okay. Romans 11, verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Loved ahead of time. That's what that word means. Loved ahead of time. Some people interpret that word to say, well, uh, God knew that Israel was going to come to him, and therefore he chose them because he knew what they would do. As a matter of fact, the scripture is very plain to point out that Israel in Egypt worshipped their dumb idols. Uh, Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Joshua points out that their fathers were idol worshipers. They weren't looking for the Lord. The scripture says that Israel in bondage cried out by reason of their burdens. It does not say they cried out to the Lord. The Lord heard their cry, but it was not a cry to him at all. It was because of their misery that they were crying out. And God said, I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people. And I have heard their cry. And I am come down to deliver them. Well, enough about that. He foreloved them. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, torn down your altars, and I alone am left to seek my life. By the way, if you ever feel like you're the only one left, be reassured you are not. God always has his remnant. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So if you'll move with me, please, to verse 6. Well, okay, we'll read verse 6. And if by grace, then no no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. Let that register in your mind. Now, he was talking to Jews when he said that, and he wanted the Jews to understand that the law didn't work. That the law wasn't given to make you righteous. That the law was given 
to show you you were a sinner. It's like looking into a mirror and seeing your face is dirty, but the mirror cannot wash your face. Let me move you on over here. Verse 25 of this chapter. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant. Now you remember again, there's a big difference between ignorant and stupid. Ignorant means you don't know something that you could know and you just need to be instructed. I just think there's just a whole lot of people out there right now in this election time that are utterly ignorant. You shouldn't be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits or opinion that blindness in part has happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. What's the key to this whole thing? When the very last Gentile is born into the church of Jesus Christ, that's when God is going to turn to deal with Israel. God never deals with the Jew and the Gentile directly at the same time. In the Old Testament, he dealt directly with Israel and indirectly with the Gentiles, and that's why you have a remnant of Gentiles that were redeemed, i.e. Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus the Great, Ruth the Moabitess, and on you can go with it. In this economy currently, he is dealing directly with the Gentile, and indirectly with Israel. And that's why you see the events that are taking place with the nation of Israel. God is preparing that nation. He is preserving that nation, I need to say ahead of time. And he's preparing that nation to the ultimate end of the battle of Gog. And may Gog bring it on, Lord. Until the fullness of the Gentiles become, when the very last Gentile is born into the body of Christ, then God is going to cease to deal directly with the Gentiles and turn again to deal directly with Israel and indirectly with the Gentiles. And a lot of Gentiles will be redeemed during that time, but they are a remnant. Move on down to verse 28, and I'm going to quit. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. Now that Father's is plural, and he's talking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God made a covenant promise to those three men. It was passed from Abraham, passed to Isaac, passed to Jacob, and to his three sons, and the right to reign to Judah, and God said they are beloved for the Father's sake. I remember Abraham. You remember what he said to, to uh, 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 the guy uh, that, uh, whose wife got turned to a pillar of salt. What's his name? Lot. You remember God had visited with Lot at the tent door at Mamre. And he said... Uh, Shall I hide from Lot the thing that I proposed to do? And he told him he was going to wipe out uh, Sodom. And uh, so Lot interceded uh, with him several times until he got him down to ten people. And he said, Lord, will you destroy the city for ten righteous? And he said, no, I won't destroy it for ten righteous. And then he stopped there and left. So Lot couldn't go any further, you see. 
And uh, I'm sorry. Abraham. Abraham, yes, I'm so sorry. I do that. I'm getting uh, 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 Jonah in Noah's boat again. That's haste makes wings. So Abraham had pled with Lot. Abraham was the great intercessor, and he'd pled with the Lord. And he wouldn't let him get any lower than ten because he had six in there. He wanted to get out. If he'd have got the six, uh, Lot wouldn't have been, or uh, my, my, Sodom wouldn't have been destroyed. So he wouldn't let him get six. In any case, you remember the story. Uh, God visited judgment, fire and brimstone on the city of of uh, Sodom. Uh, Lot and his wife and his uh, two daughters got out. Uh, wife was turned to a pillar of salt. But the conclusion of the passage is, I said all that, say this, God remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of Sodom. God had a covenant with Abraham and it passed to Abraham's children. God made a covenant with Jesus Christ and it passes to all of Jesus' children. They are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. I like the New King James. It says irrevocable. Let's stand and pray. Our Father, we thank you again for the promises that we have in Christ Jesus. We anticipate your restoring your people, but more than that, we anticipate the day when we'll hear the trumpet and hear the cry, Rise, my love, my fair one, and come away. We don't look for the Antichrist, we look for Christ. Our Father, even so come. Lord Jesus, bless you all.